Well, it was mud and fun. Those were the two critical elements that made me remember this, even though it was like almost 40 years ago. It was my first ministry assignment. And my first ministry assignment was being in, tar in charge of junior high recreation at a Bible camp. And so we decided to culminate the week of junior high Bible camp in northern Minnesota with a classic game of tug of war, uh, where we get two different sides. And I told the person that was working the site, I said, if you could really help me out, this would be great. This would be the game changer. If you could make sure that we have a good mud pit to uh, do the tug of war. And so you can imagine, he said, with pleasure. So they made a, a mud pit, and we brought the junior high students on one end and another, and they started tugging and tugging and pulling on this rope and pulling on the rope. And soon the students realized that in order to win, they could uh, just call on one of their Bible camp counselors, their cabin counselors. So one counselor jumped on one side, then they jumped on the other side, and they pulled and they pulled. Of course they fell. Isn't that the most important thing? They fall and do a face plant. So there was mud everywhere. We were laughing and we were, we were, getting, we were just enjoying the, uh, the event as we concluded. And I'll never forget that first ministry assignment that we had. There's, there's kind of a tug of war that, go, that goes on at Christmas, isn't there? There's a tug of war that's frustrating at times. <clears throat> For those of us who are followers of Christ, we're probably a little frustrated with the commercialization of Christmas. And it's probably not going away, just saying. You were frustrated by the fact that after Halloween, the stores immediately get ready for Christmas. And we go, wait a second, what happened to Thanksgiving? Right? There's this incredible tug of war. And then years ago, uh, there was something that was floating around that was saying, uh, keep Christ in Christmas, not this Xmas thing. And yeah, not Xmas, not Xmas, until you realize that X is the capital letter in Greek for the first name, for the first letter for Christ. It's actually an X. So you can't really get rid of Christmas. You can't really get rid of Christ in Christmas. But there's that frustration, certainly. We get that one tug. On the other end of the rope are those people that are maybe not yet followers of Christ, or they're unchurched or de-churched or ex-evangelical, or the popular word right now is deconstructed. And they're frustrated that because with all the songs like, it's beginning to look a lot like Christmas, I'm dreaming of a white Christmas, with all those songs, whether you go to the mall or you go to the grocery store or you just go downtown, here in Eau Claire, there's all these other songs that have something to do with faith, like Joy to the World and Hark the Herald Angels Sing, or even a crazy song like Rum Pum Pum Pum. They're Rum Pum Pum Pumming for him. So how do you deal with this, with this tension that goes back and forth? Well, as the Kiefer's reminded us, this is the beginning of Advent, it's part of the liturgical church year. We do this two times a year. We talk about church year. The other time of the year, we talk about Lent. Start with Ash Wednesday, 40 days to get ready for Easter. Now, we celebrate Advent, four weeks to get ready for the birth of Christ on Christmas Day. Think of it this way. Advent comes from the Latin word adventus, 
You may say, I'll never remember that. We'll just tie Advent with another A, and that is arrival or coming. Arrival of what? Arrival of something significant or something or someone significant. How about him who split time in half? So for the next four weeks, we're going to walk through Advent. Today, our, our theme is hope. I want to make that really, really clear. Next week, I'll share with you a message on faith. My colleague, Pastor Brian, has been given a wonderful assignment. He gets to talk about joy. And then we'll talk about peace. And the Sunday after Christmas on the 26th, we'll talk about light. Here they are, hope and faith and joy and peace and light. Now, maybe you have a friend, someone at work, or someone at school, or someone in your family who says something like this, I am so glad you have found happiness and peace, and this makes you content, but I can't buy into this. What would you say? What would you say if someone who just says, you know, it seems like a fairy tale? What would you say? Well, I hope that in the course of the next four weeks, you can be equipped and you can begin to pray for someone who is not yet a follower of Christ to make one step closer to the manger. And so this morning, we're going to take a look at what hope looks like. And there's some strong words that I want to use with you, some strong verbs that I hope kind of lock in this mystery of the one who is the hope that we have. The one who you would need to literally take out a microscope to kind of follow this miracle down the fallopian tubes, down the, the uterus into the womb that the one who saw the creation of the universe became a helpless baby and he is the one that we point to. Let's have a word of prayer. This time of the season is very difficult for people. My colleague, Pastor Kurt, and the care team do a wonderful job with Grief Share. And it's during this particular time, during the holidays, Thanksgiving, Christmas, New Year's, where those who have felt loss, it gets amped up now. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we especially lift up in prayer those who are hurting because of, lo because of losses of loved ones, whether that's recent or in past years. The holidays can be and are often difficult. And I pray that during the mourning and the grieving and the season, you will be close to them. It is only by the presence of the Holy Spirit that, that you comfort and come alongside those in such deep and tender heartaches. But we hold on to this promise that you don't leave us alone. Strong words like refuge and fortress speak of your protection in the book of Psalms encouraging words that your spirit comforts and even guides us. Strengthen us to face another day and another week. Your holy word is alive and active. So for those who grieve and mourn and cry and weep and ache, I pray that they would find life and hope in your holy word. I pray for this church family, the one known as Bethesda, would be othered, more other-centered to those who are hurting and that many individuals will follow the prompts of the Spirit of God to reach out, especially during this time. We thank you that you love us. You prove that by sending your son, Emmanuel, God with us. He is our source of hope, 
and it is his name we pray. Amen and amen. I want to encourage you to find a bulletin and uh, follow along with me. I think you'll get more out of it. It's on the back side of your worship bulletin here. Take some notes. There will be some key words I think that you'll want to jot down. And if you're watching online, we're so glad that you're watching online. If you're listening to this a little bit later, I want to encourage you to go to our website and download it. Thanks for joining us this morning. Here's what we're going to take a look at. I want to share with you three things about hope as we adore this one. And that is this. First of all, hope is hardwired in us. Let me repeat that again. Hope is hardwired. That's that key, first key verb that I mentioned. What do I mean by that? Well, I want to encourage you to turn with me to a wisdom piece of literature called the book of Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes chapter 3. There's pew Bibles that are in front of you, and if you want to turn to page 572, 572, I want to take a look at a lens, understanding the hardwired that we are hardwired for eternity. The verse that we're going to look at is verse 11, and it's set up in the context of there is a time for everything. Now, this word time is, is used repeatedly throughout this section of Scripture. The Old Testament was written in the book of Hebrew, but it was also translated into Greek. And so this word time, the very first word that you see in verse 1, it says there's a time for everything, and this is what that word means. It means chronos. Like this service started at 10.30, you're going to eat at noon or 12.30. The ball game starts at 3.45. It's that kind of time. But from then on, a different word for time is used. It's the word for kairos, and it means a period or a season, a breakthrough moment. And that word is repeated again and again and again. And then the writer for the book of of Ecclesiastes uses what's called parallelism. He goes back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. And he says, the first one, look at what it says in verse 2. He says, there's a time to be born and there's a time to die. There's a time to plant and there's a time to uproot. In my neighborhood, we have seen people come into our neighborhood in, over the course of the last three months and we've seen really cool couples pack up and leave. So he goes back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. And then he lands on verse 11, which is what we want to focus on. Beginning in verse 9, it says, What do workers gain from their toil? I have seen the burden God has laid on the human race, and he has made everything beautiful in its kairos time. Yet he has set eternity in the human heart. Yet no one can fathom what God has done from the beginning to the end. What does that mean? It means this. God's beautiful, mind-blowing world is too big for us. Yet this world, its satisfactions are too small. We are hardwired for eternity. The things of time cannot fully and permanently satisfy. Hope sees eternity and knows life here on earth is not all there is. Sprinkled throughout Scripture, you see this. You see this marinated throughout Scripture, this anticipation that there is someone that is coming, someone that will be born, someone that will rescue us, someone that will satisfy us. The book of Psalms is one of many places that we see that. If you go to the left, 
Psalm 33 on page 478 of the Pew Bible, gives us some contrasts. You note the contrast. There will be three contrasts that the writer for the book of Psalms wants you to understand about hope being hardwired. Beginning in verse 13, it says this, from the heavens the Lord looks down and sees all mankind. Smart scholars call that the omniscience of God. That's one of his attributes. He knows all things. Wow. And from his dwelling place, he watches all who live on the earth. He who forms the hearts of all who considers everything they do. And this is the contrast. Three contrasts, beginning in verse 16. No king is saved by the size of his army. Bummer. No warrior escapes by his great strength. Bummer part two. And a horse is a vain hope for deliverance. Despite all its great strength, it cannot save. We might say tanks or nuclear warheads. But, here's the contrast. Here's the contrast. And the but stands up. But the eyes of the Lord are on those who fear him, on those whose hope in his, is in his unfailing love to deliver them from death and keep them alive in famine. Now, we just concluded... Two weeks ago, we just concluded a series called Lord, Teach Us to Pray. And my heart in that series was threefold. I've shared this before. Number one, that we would wrestle with this understanding that he's both a father who is tender and he is a God who is terrifying, both and. Number two, that we would double down on prayer and intercession as a church family and individually. And number three, that when we say to one another, I'll pray for you, there would be a, oh, you're going to talk to him on my behalf. And in part of that series, when we walked, talked about the will of God, we understood that the catechism says, what does this mean? Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In this petition, we pray that your will will be done. We just pray that you'll do it in our lives. Now, the reason I tell you that is that hope and waiting go hand in hand. Sometimes we can't see what God is doing. It doesn't mean he's not working. It doesn't mean he's not preparing. He doesn't mean he's not changing character. It doesn't mean that he's not working behind the scenes. Yes, and even someone you love. Great example. Great example. We see this at Christmas time. We don't talk about, a lot about him except for this old couple who the Bible says were faithful and blameless, Zechariah and Elizabeth. Zechariah was a priest. Elizabeth was his wife. In that day, not to have children was to consider a social scorn and almost like, I wonder why God hasn't blessed them. You see this in Samuel, in, in Hannah, Samuel's mom. They face the scorn. Yet the Bible says that they were righteous and they were godly people. In, in that day, the culture, even though he was a priest, he could have divorced his wife, but he chose not to do that. Their son was very famous. Their son, eventually, when God blessed them with the son, their son was called John the Baptist. And God used that man in a mighty way. In a mighty way. In fact, Jesus, 
later says in Matthew 11, 11 about this boy, about this man, his cousin. There is no one greater on earth born of a woman than him, John the Baptist. Now, I've been thinking about, I've been thinking about this all week. And, I mean, I know he's Jesus. He's second person of the Trinity. But aren't there times you just want to have a cup of coffee with Jesus and say, time out. Jesus, I just got to ask you this. So I've been thinking about this all week. There are no ballparks or stadiums called John the Baptist Ballpark. There's no bridges. There's no monuments. There's no museums. John the Baptist, even on Mount Rushmore, he doesn't make short lists or long lists. John the Baptist. In fact, when you think about all the great religious people who, whenever you see the list, he's never on the list. I mean, there's Jesus, there's Buddha, there's Muhammad, there's Confucius, there's Billy Graham, there's Mother Teresa, there's Kirk. All the big shots are on the list. But where's John the Baptist? He pointed to the manger. He pointed to the manger. Write this down. Write this down. Life is hard. God is good. Don't confuse the two. Life is hard. God is good. Don't switch those up. Hope is the central narrative of the heart of Christmas, and it is hardwired in us. Here's the second thing I want you to make note of. And come let us adore him. Hope is anchored in location, location, location. Say that back to me. Hope is anchored in location, location, location. What do I mean by that? I mean the space and the site and the setting and the area where hope made a home is in a location. And if you want to jot this down, you can do this. It's just three words. It's just three words. And this will help you. It's already, not yet. Already, not yet. Micah 5.2 gives us a tiny city. It would be probably more like a town, not a city, with massive clues. Micah 5, verse, verse 2. If you want to turn with me in your Bibles, again, the Pew Bible is page 800, Micah 5.2. Here's this town. Here's this prophet. This was written 800 years before Jesus would ever walk on planet Earth. 800 years Micah, yeah, uh, Bethlehem is, is named. Yes, it's the city of David. But before then, it was the burial place of Rachel, Jacob's favorite wife. And if you pick that up and you said, oh, he had another wife? Yep. Then he had a couple maid servant girls who also birthed him kids. And it was a dysfunctional mess. And a friend of mine gave a sermon 25 years ago he said, meet the Jacobson family. And I thought, I didn't know there were Norwegians in the Bible. There it is. And Bethlehem was Rachel's burial place. But it was also King David's town, a small little town that, watch, listen, listen this is what happened from Micah chapter 5 to page 800. Got it? But you, O Bethlehem Ephraim, through you, though you are small, among the clans of Judah, out of you will come from me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins from of old, from ancient times. What does that mean? Well, if you go to Proverbs chapter 8, 22 and 23, just the whole book of Proverbs, the whole chapter of Proverbs 8, it is mind-blowing 
Jesus's firsthand experience and witnessing of creation. He talks about that. And the one who saw the world created now is going to be born? Bethlehem, by the way, this is loaded with clues. The word Bethlehem means house of bread. Did Jesus ever refer to him about being the bread of life? Yeah, he did. He talked in John chapter 6 about being the bread of life. I am the bread of life. And when he gave this teaching, the people who heard it did this. Sure, did you hear that? It's called grumble, grumble, grumble. They grumbled. And in John chapter 6, when Jesus said, I am the bread of life, it was me that gave the Israelites the bread in the desert. And that was me. Some of the disciples left, and Jesus turned to his disciples and said, and what about you? What about you? And good old Peter, what a good egg he is, huh? He said, you have the words of eternal life. Where are we going to go? Where are we going to go? The second passage of Scripture, excuse me, the second passage of Scripture I want you to turn over to is Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5 on page 969. Romans chapter 5. This is a, um, a five-pack bundle of hope. Paul David Tripp has been so helpful to me in this message. He helped unpack this a little bit. There's five things that give us hope in this passage of Scripture. Verse 1 says this, that our hope is anchored to our justification. Therefore, since we've been justified through faith, we have peace with God through Jesus our Lord, through whom we have gained full access by faith into the grace which we have now stand. If you know Christ, your sins are forgiven. You're accepted. You're declared a son of the Most High. You're declared a daughter of the King. And it's based on Jesus. He died on the cross because you weren't good enough. No one is. The law is not a checklist to keep. It's a benchmark. We fail again and again and again. That's what Christ came to do. Our hope in verse 3 and 4 says that our hope is, or in, in the second part of verse 2, our hope is, is based in the glory of God. When God gets the glory, that's a good thing, and that's a good thing for us. Verse 3 and 4 says that our hope is anchored in our suffering. Our hope is anchored in our suffering. Not only so, but we glory in our suffering because we know that suffering is, produces perseverance, produce, perseverance character, and character, hope. Hope. Those who have gone through difficult times know that they have a testimony for Christ because God saw them through. Life is hard. God is good. Don't confuse the two. Verse 5 says this, and hope does not put us to shame. Hope does not put us to shame. Our hope is anchored vertically. Our hope in God will never be put to shame. All other hope, forms of hope, will fail us in some way. Hope in a created things, whether it's experiences or people or desires or our dreams, will fail. But hope in the creator has never, ever failed and never, ever will. 
We can hope in people, but our love and respect, they love and respect us, but they can't give you life. We can hope in situations that will make, some will make life easier, but they can't give you life. We can hope in a location. Maybe I'll change addresses. They can bring some changes in your life, but they can't give you life. And achievements can be temporarily satisfying, but they can't give you life. Lasting hope is never found horizontally. It's only found vertically. And finally this, in the second part of verse 5, Romans 5, 5, I love this. I'm going to give you one more thing to write down. God's love has been poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. You can write this down. God has made us the address where he lives. God has made us the address to where he lives. Now, yes, sin still remains. Even though we've been accepted and we've been forgiven and the Holy Spirit is in us and our hope is found vertically, sin still remains. So daily repentance is called for. The disciplines of grace are begged. We need those desperately as we turn to God in prayer and we need one another in each other's lives. But hope is hardwired in us. Hope includes expectations. And people hope in all kinds of different stuff, don't they? Uh, this weekend, my family was with uh, my daughter and her husband and our two little grandchildren. They, they shared that. As I told you, they shared their colds with me. I'm so grateful. And uh, we went to Irvine Park. How many of you have been to Irvine Park yet? Have you done that? So we brought the kids and we got the free hot chocolate at the end and the cookie and we were enjoying that and listening to the music and we were walking and then there's the circle that you turn around and so I'm reading the 12 days of Christmas, you know, and I'm reading it and this year for some reason it just jumped out at me like six geese a-laying and I'm thinking, I know what geese do, who wants to do that? Who wants to give something like that? But people have their hope in all kinds of stuff. Like I hope this Christmas is going to be better than what? Here's the final thing we need to rest in. Hope is tied to a who. Hope is tied to a who. We see that in the Gospel of, of, of Isaiah. We see this powerful declaration of who this is. Isaiah chapter 9. Again, if you've got the Pew Bible. It's on page 593. We hear this very famous passage of scripture. For unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulders. We hear that from Handel's Messiah. Wouldn't that be a great thing? Again, in our prayer series, your kingdom will come. In this petition we pray that your kingdom will come. And we just pray that'll come in our lives. So God is building even when we can't see it. And it rests on this one who is given names that only God has. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Those are only names that God uses. But if you unpack those, the Trinity is right there, and they share one name. Wonderful Counselor. We call, that the, we, we call him the Holy Spirit. 
the one who counsels and illuminates God's word and prompts us and whispers to us and confirms things that we know to be true from God's word. Almighty God, all three in the Trinity are God. Different beings, same substance. Everlasting Father, who's that? Uh, trick question, is that the Father? Yep. And Prince of Peace, that's King Jesus. That's King Jesus. The hope is a who. And the hope is he's for. And that's what's true. If you flip over just a little bit, a couple more chapters, you get to this passage of scripture. In Isaiah chapter 40, verse 30. Even youths grow tired and weary, and young men stumble and fall. And don't you wish Isaiah would say, an old man needs naps? Amen? Yeah, just saying. But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not faint. He is worthy of our trust. If you're looking for a, um, a great stocking stuffer for somebody that you love, this book was really helpful to me this week in preparing 40 Days of Hope by Paul David Tripp. He writes this. Now here's the problem. We all go through times in our lives when we slide into thinking that we're smarter than God. This is, that is, that what we want for ourselves is better than what, we, what he wants for us. We chafe against what he puts on our plates. We rebel against how he has told us to live in, this, in his word. We wonder why our lives seem harder than those of the people next to us. We wonder why breaking one of God's little laws to make things better is such a bad thing. So we call out, cry out for grace. The war between God's will and your will has not ended. The desire for God to exercise his power to deliver your personal dreams is not yet gone. The temptation to think that you know better still has the power to capture you. Reach out for help. Your Savior has died to give you. Ask him again to rescue you from you. Pray for the sense of heart to know that there's no safer place to be than in submission to the will of your Father in heaven. And have the courage this morning to look to heaven and say, your kingdom come, your will be done, right here, now in my life, just like it is in heaven. And thank God that he cared for you so much that he exercised his will for your welfare and salvation. When you're joyfully willing to submit to the will of your father, you know grace has taken residence in your heart. What a good word. Ooh, that's good. So as we do... Each Sunday, it's part of our vision. We eagerly respond to God's word. Where does that come from? Well, Jesus' little brother, James, who writes the book of James, says, don't just be a hearer of the word, be a doer of the word. So here are some action steps just to consider, just to think about, okay? Number one, examine your hope location. Where, what, or who is your hope anchored to? Please, I beg of you, if you do not know Christ as Savior and Lord, this Christmas is not just a religious celebration. It's a conspiracy that God came in the flesh. And if you're watching online or if you're listening to my voice, if you've not made Christ your Savior and Lord, a simple prayer of God, have mercy on me. God, have mercy on me. He hears those prayers all the time, every time, and he will move. Confess your sins. Turn to Christ. Ask him to come into your heart. Ask him to redeem you and change you. 
and he will hear you. The second one I want you just to consider is pray for four weeks. Why four weeks? Well, we're in Advent. Pray for a loved one or a friend who needs to meet the who of hope this Christmas. Pray for them. Do the hard work on your knees privately where no one sees. Pray that God will move in someone's heart, whether it's at work or at school or in your family, that they'll take one step closer to the manger. One step closer to the manger. Listen, the analytics that come across my desk says this, one out of three people that you invite to church, they'll take you up on it. That's pretty good batting average, one out of three. Pray for them. And then take a picture. We have three different places that you can take a picture and invite someone to join you to come to church. Next week, these we'll, we'll, have, we'll have some uh, postcards like this. They'll be in your bulletin, and you can take them. And, and, and so what we're suggesting that you do is that you just take a picture, whether it's here in the sanctuary or out in the uh, lobby area. There it is. We can borrow you a sleeping granddaughter, maybe. And you can just post it on your social media and just say, join me at church on Thursday, on 3, 5, or 7, or you figure out when you're going to come to church. But, but post it. And if you want to go old school, we have the old school nativity in the fellowship hall. Post that. Watch what God will do. Watch what God will do. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for this opportunity that we have as the church to prepare our hearts for the hope of Christ. I pray, Father, for our relationships that we have, for neighbors, for family members, for people at work, for people at school, begin to soften their hearts. Who's in the manger truly, truly satisfies. We thank you that we could gather. We thank you that you have given us a hope that will not disappoint, that will actually renew our strength no matter what we're going through. In Jesus' name, amen.